I'm going to uh, start with a, uh, a story, but it's a real-life story from the Bible. M- many of you are very familiar with it. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, at the tail end of the period of the judges, when Samuel was growing old and his sons were proving not to be as righteous as he had been at judging Israel, the people of Israel came to Samuel and they said, We want a king to judge us like all the nations around us. Now that request had far-reaching implications, to put it mildly. If you read the book of Judges, you'll quickly see that the judges didn't just judge. They didn't just just, uh, uh, render judgment about conflicts and that kind of thing. The overwhelming majority of what's recorded in the book of Judges about the activity of the judges has to do with their exploits in battle against the enemies of Israel, fighting against many hostile nations that surrounded Israel. They governed Israel after a fashion, but it was a time in which everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and there clearly wasn't a whole lot of submitting to God going on, even among some of those who were in the position of being judges over Israel. But the nations around Israel didn't have judges. They had kings. Kings who ruled firmly, while at the same time going out to battle to protect their domains whenever necessary. And when the Israelites demanded that Samuel appoint a king to judge them, that's what they were asking for. A man who would rule over them, who would secure the position of their nation economically, who would direct them skillfully and strategically in battle. In short, they wanted a king who would protect them and provide for them as if they did not have one. But they already had a king. And it wasn't Samuel, and it wasn't Gideon or Jephthah or Samson or any of the the other judges that God had raised up. In 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, God said to Samuel, They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. But God let them have their way for a time. In fact, for a long time. And if you pay attention to what happens in the Bible when God lets His people have their way, it's not pretty. It's never the most direct route to blessing. The direct route to blessing is when God's people let Him have His way. Israel wanted to be ruled, and they wanted to be ruled by a man. Why? (laughs) Because in their minds, a strong authoritarian ruler meant that they would be well protected and well provided for. On the other hand, a God whom they could not see with their own eyes and hear with their own ears, they didn't exactly see how that kind of God could take care of them when their real enemies were flesh and blood and had lots of horses and chariots and wealth. In the verses that follow in 1 Samuel 8, Samuel told the people of Israel on behalf of God what the procedure of the king would be who would be appointed over them. He told them that king would appoint commanders and men to do his plowing and reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war. He would use their sons to do a whole lot of that dirty work. He told them that that king would take their daughters and to serve him in the royal household as bakers and perfumers and cooks. And then interestingly, he told them that that king would demand for himself the best tenth, the tithe of their crops and give them to his servants. Who was supposed to get the tithe in Israel? God. Samuel continued for several verses then to explain how the human king would basically serve his interests at their expense. And yet, in verse 18, when Samuel said to them, Samuel said to them, Then you will cry out on that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, 
No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, what does that passage have to do with elders and with 1 Peter chapter 5? (laughs) A lot. We have the same sinful leanings as the Israelites did in Samuel's day because sin hasn't really changed all that much in 3,000 years. We want to be ruled. We want to be protected. We want to be provided for. And at one level, we want to be ruled by men. Men who have the power to provide for us, to protect us, to tell us who's right and who's wrong when there are conflicts among us that trouble us. And yet as soon as we find ourselves under that kind of leadership, we cry out in protest because from another angle, we really don't like being submitted to men at all. It's a paradox. We want our leaders to be really strong when they serve our agendas and really weak when they don't. In other words, what we really want is leaders who will shield us from having to do stuff we don't like and give us a free hand to do stuff we do like. And you know what God tells us? He says, as my people, you get neither. And we're not particularly comfortable with that arrangement. The design for leadership and submission that God presents to us in His Word for His covenant people runs counter to our agenda on both sides. It doesn't shield us from having to do stuff we don't like, and it doesn't give us a free hand to do stuff we do like. Instead, it makes us accountable to God Himself. And until we humble ourselves and let God tell us how leadership and submission is supposed to work, we're never going to be satisfied. We'll be chronically dissatisfied. And the Bible is full of that picture of dissatisfaction on the part of God's people with His approach to leadership. On the other hand, as soon as we do humble ourselves to let God tell us how this is supposed to work, we get to relax. We still have plenty to do, but we get to do it without anxiety. We get to stop worrying about whether or not our well-being is taken care of, about whether we have the protection and provision that we long for. This has everything to do with the way leadership and submission work in the church, including this church. We tend to want leaders in our churches, and I'm talking about the church in a broad sense, who will guarantee that we have big, comfortable local churches with no empty seats, leaders who will ensure that we also have big budgets with no red ink, but who won't ask very much from us when it comes to meeting those budgets. Leaders who, in times of turmoil in our lives and in our families, will know us better than we know ourselves, and whose counsel will always be supernaturally wise and spot on, so that when we're hurting and confused, We'll get really good answers that will tell us exactly how to quickly put an end to the difficulties and pain. Leaders who will do their jobs so well that we really won't have all that much need for God. But God tells us He absolutely doesn't intend to give us leaders like that. Instead, He gives us leaders who are every bit as dependent on Him as we are. In Acts 20.28, when Paul had gathered the elders of the church at Ephesus to address them for the last time, he said to them, Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. He says, Diligently watch over yourselves as you watch over all the flock, the sheep whom he purchased with his own blood. By the way, it says God purchased them with his own blood. It's a pretty direct statement about the deity of Christ just inside. The task you do is a sacred task if, you're, if you have a role of leadership in the body of Christ. But it's not your task. It's God's task. You're an instrument So don't get in the way. 
make sure that you are as mindful of yourself as you are of the people over whom you lead and really the people that you're responsible for whose care you're responsible. So all that means that the leaders who will lead best in the church will be the ones who lead most humbly and with the greatest acknowledgement of their own utter dependence upon God. Now, how are leaders in God's church supposed to lead and, and based on what we see in this passage? Peter goes into some detail. And there are a number of things that I believe uh, he tells us about God's assignment to elders. And he's talking to elders in the first uh, four verses of this passage. In verse 1, the first point I want to make is that he te- uh, that elders are to lead as under-shepherds of Jesus Christ. In verse 1, Peter begins by affirming his credentials as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ and as a partaker of the glory to be revealed. He was there for all of it. Peter was there for the life of Christ. He was there for the passion of Christ. He got to see it all unfolding. He was there when Christ was crucified. He was there to see the transfiguration even before that and to see the resurrected Christ and to see the ascension of Christ. But it's interesting. He doesn't say, as an apostle, I exhort you. He says, as a fellow elder, I exhort you. I exhort the elders. That's a great example for us right there. But he says, shepherd the flock of God. The flock of God. It's not your flock. And then in verse 4 he says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Whenever you hear uh, Bible teachers talk about uh, elders as under-shepherds, that comes from this statement. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now I did a lot of looking, and this was interesting, as far or to me at least, as far as I can tell, There's only one verse in the New Testament that ever directly refers to leaders, any leaders in the church, as shepherds, as a noun. And that's Ephesians 4.11. It says, God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. And the word pastors is the plural of the Greek poimen, which just means it's shepherd. Shepherds is what that's talking about. But in nine of the ten times that the actual title shepherd is used in the New Testament, where it's not talking about guys who shepherd four-legged sheep, nine of ten times it refers to Jesus. Only in Ephesians 4.11 does it refer to anyone else. It refers to Jesus, the shepherd of the sheep, the good shepherd, the one shepherd, the shepherd and guardian of your souls. And here in 1 Peter 5, 4, the chief shepherd. That's not accidental, that ratio of 1 to 9. Elders are instruments of Christ's leading and provision and protection of his flock. Jesus is the source. And if you, anytime you mix the instruments up with the source, things get, get completely goofed up. All right, elders lead as under-shepherds. Secondly, elders lead as a group. Eldership is not a task for one man. And the same applies to deacons who act under the authority of of elders. In 1 Peter 5, the word elders is plural. Most occurrences in the New Testament, it's plural. In James 5.14, James says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. He's talking about the local church context. Elders, plural. In Acts 14.23, it says that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every church. Plural. Each local body of believers was to have multiple elders. Now, there were no doubt some house churches or small contexts in which just a few people met that probably didn't have more than one elder. Maybe they didn't have one that met with them regularly. But you go just one step above that when you're talking about the community of Christ followers in one part of a town or in the whole town, and there were supposed to be multiple elders overseeing the body of Christ. 
There is absolutely no provision in the New Testament for any kind of hierarchical distinction between one elder and another. There was no such thing in the Bible as a head elder. In fact, and I know I get in trouble with this uh, on this from some folks, but I don't find any mention in the New Testament of a senior pastor. In fact, since the word pastor means shepherd, Senior pastor sounds a whole lot to me like chief shepherd. There's only one of those. On the other hand, the word for chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5.4 is singular. There's only one. There's only one chief shepherd over the flock of God. There is only one head over the body of Christ. And the next level below that in God's ordained hierarchy is elders. And they are plural, not singular. There's a reason for that. Uh, some people might think plurality of elders is kind of an inconsequential, kind of not, not very important point. I can tell you the elders at CBC believe it's a very important point. At CBC, each elder has one vote, and that includes me. That protects against the tendency for any one man to have an undue influence over decisions that affect the church, and it keeps us accountable to each other. God uses us, the the body too, but he uses the group of seven elders to keep one another accountable to him on the basis of his word. And, by the way, his word provides the all-sufficient basis of that accountability. This is where we go to resolve issues. Now, some issues that elders and deacons have to deal with are fairly pragmatic and mundane, like exactly how much money will be devoted to some specific budget category. The wisdom found in God's word, I believe, informs even those decisions, and they are undertaken prayerfully. But any and every time that the Bible comments on a matter, we as elders are to hold each other accountable to it and to submit to what God has to say about it. And we do a lot of that. There's only a, I can tell you in two and a half years, there's only a fairly small percentage of the time that I, ex- I express the way I'd like to see something go and it ends up going exactly that way. And I consider that really, really good especially because all these other guys on the elder board have been at it a lot longer than I have. That's the way it's supposed to work. We do that for each other. Now, we believe this model of plurality uh, is to be taken very seriously. Only one chief shepherd over multiple under-shepherds who hold each other accountable to him who is the head, Jesus Christ. Alex Strout, by the way, has a great book. Uh, I don't have it in paper form, but it's called Biblical Eldership. It's pretty short, pretty concise, and rock solid when it comes to what the Bible has to say about this. I'd encourage you, if you have any questions at all about why we do eldership and leadership and deaconship in the body of Christ the way we do, get that book. Uh, It's in the library. All right, so elders lead as under-shepherds, elders lead as a group, and third... Elders lead. The imperative verb in 1 Peter 5, verse 2, shepherd. In fact, that's the verbal idea for all the first three verses. That's the heart of it. The command to elders to shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God. The rest of what's said in those verses tells us how. What does it mean to shepherd? Well, actually, you can learn a whole lot by watching how those who shepherd four-legged sheep do it. There's a book I came across a long time ago, and I, I'm sure it's in the library, but it was uh, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. It's beautiful. Uh, I won't do it justice here, but I'm just going to hit on a few things. A shepherd nurtures his sheep. He takes them to good grazing areas where they will be well-fed and to brooks and streams where they'll find good water. He knows his sheep. He's constantly aware of what they need, and he diligently works to address those needs. Any any ailment, any injury, he's always looking to address those needs. He protects his sheep from predators and other natural threats. 
the most central part of his task, the assignment that he must fulfill in order to do all of that other stuff is that he must lead them. He knows where the good pastures are. He knows where the sources of good water are. In places where unstable rocks are not going to fall on the sheep and, and hurt them or kill them. He knows where to go so that there will be broad, expansive pastures where he can see predators coming before they get there and where he can see if, if any of the sheep are straying from the flock so he can go and get them and nudge them back. All of this demands very purposeful leading, working intentionally and tirelessly to nudge and steer and prompt the sheep in a particular direction and keep them together And as the sheep come to know their shepherd, they readily and willingly follow him because they know and sense his care for them. Elders must lead as faithful shepherds, and the sheep must let them lead and must follow their lead. We'll get to the sheep's assignment a little further on. A lazy or passive shepherd won't have a flock for very long. Some sheep will wander off unnoticed or they'll get just enough distance between them and the rest of the flock that a wolf or a bear or a lion will pounce and that'll be the end of them. A shepherd who doesn't move his sheep forward to new pastures will have hungry sheep because they'll overgraze the spot of land that they're on and then there's nothing left to eat. Elders who take a lazy or passive approach to the care of God's church will run into the same kinds of things in the human realm. Some members of the body will wander off into the grasp of worldly influences or godless people who will happily devour them spiritually. Marriages will falter and nobody will notice until they're destroyed. Children will stray into rebellion with nobody except their parents taking any interest. And I can tell you, it makes a whole lot of difference when it's not just the parents paying attention to what's going on with the children. Non-essential issues that would not divide will take on an inordinate importance and they'll create major schisms, divisions within the church. Serious sin will go unaddressed and will destroy relationships and shipwreck the faith of those who have succumbed to it. If you want to see some very painful real-world instances of failed leadership on the part of God-ordained shepherds in the community of God's people and the grievous toil it took on the people of God, just look up the words shepherd and sheep in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, and look at what happens when you, in, in the context where God is indicting the shepherds for failing to lead. Sheep without a shepherd are, uh, will fare very poorly, so elders must lead. Elders lead as under-shepherds. They lead as a group. They lead, and they embrace shepherding. Peter says, Shepherd the flock of God, verse 2, among you, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. When he says, not under compulsion, that means that he doesn't do it because he is constrained or required to do it. He does it eagerly. He does it voluntarily. It means that if a man doesn't see the role of elder as desirable for Christ's sake, he shouldn't be an elder. In 1 Timothy 3.1, Paul says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. And then starting in the next verse, he, gets, he begins giving the qualifications for elders, followed immediately by the qualifications for deacons. And by the way, the prerequisites for those two roles, elders and deacons, are almost identical. If you're qualified for, for one, you're pretty much qualified for the other. It's healthy for a man who is being considered for either of those roles to struggle some with the magnitude of the task that keeps him dependent on the chief shepherd. 
but he should see the task as a fine work. Now, it is a, it's a marvelous assignment, and it will stretch you, uh, it will test you, it will refine you, but you know what? Even that is not what, make, what makes a man rightly aspire to be an elder or a deacon in Christ's church. See, you don't become an elder and you don't become a deacon for you, not even for your own spiritual development. You become an elder or a deacon to serve him and to care for his flock, period. If you're doing it for any other reason, don't do it. (laughs) All right, elders embrace shepherding and elders don't abuse the assignment of shepherding. The word translated sordid gain, Peter says don't do it. They don't do it for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Sordid gain means dishonest or fraudulent gain. And I believe he's very much talking about monetary gain as the focus here. Peter's talking about men who pursue positions of leadership in Christ's church to line their own pockets. If that was a problem in his age, it's a huge problem in our age. When men plaster their names and their faces on billboards and water towers and say, you need to be under my teaching. And if you'll give me a bunch of money, if you'll give God a bunch of money through me, it will go well for you. You know what that is? That's extortion. It's charlatanism. It's hocus-pocus. It's a con game. And there are people doing it all over the place. There are churches packed with people every Sunday who are paying attention to that nonsense and and rendering honor to people who are saying that to them. The term fleecing the flock is particularly appropriate here. The godly elder shepherds his master's sheep out of concern for him and for them never out of concern for himself. And as Peter says here, he does so with eagerness. That means zealously, enthusiastically. It's interesting that he he contrasts sordid gain with eagerness. Every time we get this wrong in any capacity, every time we act for our interests instead of God's interests, we mess things up. And when we do it in the body of Christ, we mess up his household. If you're not willing to forget yourself to fulfill the assignment of an elder or deacon, then you don't belong in the role. You won't be any good at it. In fact, you will do more harm than good. Now, we all struggle. You can be sure every elder and deacon in this body struggles with the selfish tendencies of our own flesh, but we better know what the assignment is. In verse 4, Peter says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. The reward for those who serve in roles of leadership in his body comes later. But you know what? Even on that day that we receive, that each of us receives the crown of righteousness from Jesus Christ, we're going to cast it back at his feet because his glory, his exaltation will be the only thing that matters to us. That will be our good. Elders don't abuse the assignment and they... Lead as examples, not tyrants. Verse 3, Peter says, Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. This is exceedingly important. Verse 3 goes to the very heart of how elders are to lead in the body of Christ, and it goes to the very heart of what the flock of God should expect from their leaders, their human leaders. Peter says very concisely and unambiguously that Elders are to shepherd, God, shepherd God's flock, not by lording it over those allotted to their charge, but instead proving to be examples. Everything that we've seen in the last several weeks about headship and submission in marriage, in the relationships between men and women, applies to headship in the church of Jesus Christ. Elders lead God's flock by loving and serving as Jesus did not by lording their authority over those whom God has placed under their care. The Greek term translated lording over is a forceful term. 
In Acts 19.16, when seven Jewish exorcists decided they'd try appealing to the name of Jesus as if it were some kind of magical formula for casting out demons, it backfired badly. They tried it on one particular demon, and it says, "...the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them, all seven of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded." That's an epic fail. The word for lord it over is the word translated subdued in that verse. The evil spirit had his way with them. In Matthew 20, when the mother of James and John came to Jesus with her two sons and asked him to command that in his kingdom her sons would sit on his right and on his left, Jesus said to those two young men, Do you know what you're asking? Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they naively said, yeah, sure. They had no idea what they were talking about. Jesus then took the two of them aside and he said to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And that's the same word that Peter uses here in verse 3. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you. It is not so among you. But whoever wishes to be great, become great among you, shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you, shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Caesars in Rome and those who acted with their authority ruled over their subjects, particularly over their conquered subjects who didn't have the benefit of Roman citizenship, with unquestioned authority. They decreed what the people were required to do and the people submitted. And if they didn't submit, they found out very quickly just how much authority the rulers over them had. Jesus says, it is not so among you. That's not how leadership works in the household of God, in the flock of God. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He submitted to His Father, and He served those whom His Father had given Him, and He served them to the point of death on the cross. That's our example. That's our template on how to lead. And those who serve as under-shepherds of Christ are to set that same example. Now, for those who are outside the flock of God, the day is coming when Jesus will fully exercise His authority over them And he'll rule them by force with the rod of iron. Read Psalm chapter 2. Do homage to the Son now so that you don't perish in the way when he comes into, when he fully uh, manifests his power and authority. By the way, the Bible does not rebuke kings for ruling with absolute authority if they rule justly. But Jesus told his disciples, this is not how it will be done in my church. In his church, those who lead are not to lead harshly or in an authoritarian manner. They are to lead with love and a spirit of servanthood. They are to lead more by example than by fiat. That's not a car. It is a car. what What that means is they are not to rule by decree and demand. That doesn't mean there's never a time when elders will not have to act decisively to address high-handed sin or division in the body or false teaching or anything else that presents a demonstrable threat to God's flock. But it does mean that many, many things that happen in the life of the local body that necessitate action on the part of the elders will not be addressed by elder decree that is enforced as if it were by law. And in a great many cases, guys, whatever action is taken by the elders will not be made public. During the 26 plus years that I was part of this body as a non-elder, I never assumed that I was supposed to know what the elders knew. I never assumed that I was supposed to know what they were doing to address particular issues. Now, this is not what some people want to hear. 
And this may not be what some of you want to hear. And it requires some reflection. And I'd ask you to give it some serious thought because this isn't just talking in terms of, if we look at the way this principle lays out, it's not just talking to leaders, it's talking to all of us. How do you respond when you see your elders lead more by example and by sacrificial service than by lording their authority over those under their care? Especially when you really want to see something change. I'm going to paint a scenario here, and I want to be very clear up front. This is not based on any one incident. If you think it is, you definitely are not understanding what I'm, what I'm doing. This is a scenario that's happened many times in the history of this church. And I've been on both sides of it, by the way. Let's say that someone at CBC has been doing something that concerns you and that you believe needs to be corrected or at least adjusted. It's not clearly a sin, but you deem it to be unwise or counterproductive and you're convinced it needs to be dealt with. And let's say you've already expressed your concern to the person who caused the concern in the first place, but you didn't get the response from that person that you believed was warranted. And by the way, if you handled it that way up to that point, you did well because a lot of people won't go to the person they have the complaint against. They'll go to everybody else except that person. And let's say that after not getting the response you were hoping for from the person who caused the frustration, you went to at least one elder and you expressed to that elder your concern But now several weeks have gone by, maybe longer than several weeks, and nothing seems to have been done, at least nothing that you've been made aware of. So you go back to that elder that you talked to before and you ask him what's going on. And again, if you do that, instead of talking to everybody else about it first, you do well. And then that elder tells you that he shared that concern with some or all of the other elders and they prayed about it and they determined to give it some time. To continue to take it before the Lord diligently in prayer and to wait on Him to allow time for the Holy Spirit to work. Or perhaps he tells you that the elders have spoken with that person who created the concern and are aware that he or she has not yet fully corrected the problematic behavior But the elders are resolved to show forbearance for a time and to pray for the Spirit's work in the life of that individual in question before any further steps are taken. Are you okay with that? That doesn't sound much like leadership to some people. It definitely doesn't sound like leadership to our culture. But the one question that must must be answered is whether it matches up with what Jesus Christ tells us about leadership. Jesus showed his disciples face to face how the character of God manifests itself in leadership. He lovingly but firmly rebuked his disciples numerous times, but he persevered with them. He remained faithful toward them, and he loved them to the end. They did not deserve His forbearing grace, and neither do we, and neither do you. And Jesus says to us, is the slave greater than his master? He says to us, if if this is what I have done to you, why are you so quick to pounce on your fellow slave? God declared to Moses that he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Exodus 34.6 Do you think that maybe the elders of this church should be slow to anger, compassionate, gracious, and abounding in loving kindness and truth? Do you think that maybe you should be as well? That's God's assignment to all of us. That is certainly God's assignment to elders. And while I know I'm not doing a good job this morning of developing and differentiating the difference between elders and deacons, everything that we're seeing regarding the way elders are to lead by serving is applicable to deacons in the keeping of their assignment as well. 
But Peter also talks in this passage about God's assignment to the flock. He says in 1 Peter 5, 5, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. Now, does that mean the call to submit only applies to young men? No, it does not. Hebrews 13, verse 7 says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Verse 17 of Hebrews 13 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they... They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, and the word there is presbyteros. It's one of the two words used for elders, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, to older women as mothers, and to younger women as sisters in all purity. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Now this may strike some as self-serving since I'm one of the elders, but my task is to preach the Word, and this passage is about this. God calls elders to shepherd his flock in love and humility as servants of the flock and of the chief shepherd, not as tyrants. And at the same time, he calls the local body whom he has placed under the headship of those elders to submit to those elders whom God has given them as Christ's under shepherds and to let them do this with joy and not with grief. And that's what he means. I find it perplexing and very disappointing to see how often people in the local church, including this local church, who disagree with the elders of their church just pull chocks and go somewhere else. One of the very painful things that happens when you're in the buckle of the Bible belt is that because there's a church on every corner and there's a whole lot of them that teach the Bible, it's really, really easy to find greener pastures if you have any dissatisfaction. 25 years ago, my wife and I were ready to leave this church because of differences over a certain matter of theology back when I thought I knew everything. And one elder took me aside when I had announced that we were in the process of looking at other churches, and he said to me, Tom, when you have a disagreement, even a big one, in your family, do you leave? That question changed my life. And I am not going to take the time this morning to tell you all the ways in which it changed my life. But they are manifold. And, and because we stayed here, God has blessed us richly through this body. This is our family. Now people have to move. They, have, they get jobs, they get... They have to go other places. But don't leave because you have a gripe. Unless that gripe is over something that involves sin, that somebody that, that, that the church is not taking care of, unless it unless for some reason the church is telling you you have to do something that God forbids. It's the same drill as you and your kids, right? I told you before, my daughter came to me once. He said, she said, uh, Daddy, do I have to obey you even when you're acting crazy? And my answer was, unless I'm telling you to do something God forbids you to do, the answer is always yes. And that's by God's design. It's not by mine. The same is true in the body of Christ. The exact same principle applies. If you have a concern about something the elders or deacons at CBC are doing or not doing, we welcome you to come and share your concern. Come and talk to us. You're going to find us very receptive and very willing to be told that we haven't done something just right. But if we end up going a diff different direction or taking a different approach than you consider best, please, please consider whether your concern is over something essential 
something clearly spelled out in God's Word. If it is, and you're convinced that we are not submitting to what God requires, please come talk to us again. Or if you've talked to one elder and he seems to be shoving it under the rug, go talk to another one. I don't think that happens very often around here. But anyway, I understand if that happens, that you've got to pursue it. But if it is not something that God declares to be essential and it's not being handled the way you want it, relax. Chill out. Give it to the chief shepherd. Lay it at the feet of the head of the body. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he does all things well. We don't. If God had wanted you to have perfect elders, he certainly wouldn't have picked us. The chief shepherd will absolutely and unfailingly work good even out of our most ill-advised decisions. So relax. Now, please don't get me wrong. If you think I'm saying that we're not supposed to take the responsibility of eldership seriously, that we're not supposed to be good examples, worthy of, of emulation, you get me wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But at the moment, I'm not talking about our assignment. I've talked about that before. I'm talking about your assignment. Relax. If it's not something that, that is required by God, there's all kinds of things that we do that, that are good or bad or better, you know, best. But don't expect perfection. Trust Him. Trust Him. It's the same thing, by the way, that frees up the wife to submit to the husband when he's, his judgment's not very good. Read First Peter 3. To do it without any fear. And the example for all that is Jesus Christ. It says, while being reviled, he did not revile in return, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Who do you trust? Don't trust us. There's a very strategic reason that God commands the leaders over his people to divest themselves of the trappings of personal power and authority that the world's leaders see as absolutely essential to leadership. As Jesus said to James and John and to their very assertive mother, it is not so among you. Peter finishes by talking about serving one another. He says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. He says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. As we depend on the chief shepherd we are called not only to submit to those whom he has appointed as under-shepherds, but also to humble ourselves toward one another. If we truly understand who we serve and who's in control, then we'll never be prideful with each other. And that brings us to the last and very important point Peter makes in this exhortation, and that is that faith enables humility. He says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. God's way of doing things makes for humble, peaceful sheep. Peter exhorts us to purposefully, intentionally hand off our anxiety to the shepherd of shepherds. Why would we cling to our anxiety when we're under the care of that chief shepherd, of the king of kings, who controls everything? Our confidence in Him frees us to lead with humility, to follow with humility, and to love and serve one another with humility. Never serving or exalting ourselves because we know without a doubt that all that concerns us is covered perfectly every day because we have a good shepherd. Peter was a man familiar with anxiety. He was personally very well acquainted with what it means to fear or to misinterpret what Jesus was doing. But he knew firsthand the tender care of the great shepherd toward his sheep. Um, There was some things I wanted to say. I'm just going to kind of cut to the chase here. During the, the time after the resurrection, Jesus came and it was the third appearance to the disciples. And Jesus took Peter aside. And he said to him, Simon, John 21, verses 15 and 19, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
Peter said, uh, Jesus said to him, Tend my lambs. The second time, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to them the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. And then he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself up and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. In spite of Peter's long history of misjudgments, Jesus had not abandoned him or forsaken him, just as he will never abandon or forsake you. The chief shepherd gave Peter his commission as an under-shepherd face to face, And the commission Jesus gave to him was the commission he gives to every under-shepherd who follows in Peter's steps, and that is, follow me. Shepherd my flock. Do for them as I have done for you. Lay down your life for them as I have laid down my life for them and for you. Feed them. Shepherd them. Care for them. In the end... Men not of God's flock took Peter where he didn't want to go, just as Jesus had told him. It's reported that Peter in his death refused to be crucified as his master had, so he stretched out his hands and he was crucified upside down. We are all God's sheep. All of us who believe in Jesus Christ are in the flock of the Good Shepherd, whether you're an elder or a deacon or any other sheep in his flock. There's a question that Jesus set before Peter that, Jesus sets before us. Do you love him, the chief shepherd? And do you love his sheep? If you do, you won't pursue your own interests. You'll lay down your life for the sheep. If you belong to him, there's nothing of eternal value that anyone or anything on this earth can take away from you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, because he cares for you. I'm going to close by reading a beautiful psalm that you all know very well. It's short. It was written by David, the shepherd king, who foreshadowed the shepherd king. And we'll treat this as our closing prayer. The Lord, Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.